Now, the start of the week and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed. They were very respectable. They came in and they did the job, and that's it. You know what I mean? I, I didn't have to be wondering whether the pants were going to be falling down around his ankles. When I was in Bucha in April, um, I've seen mass graves in Azum in the north of the country. I was recently in Hezon province. And, and everywhere Russia goes, you know, when they retreat, you find torture chambers, you find bodies, and you find really unbearable stories of execution. Now, the cost of living is a big thing. uh, Christmas was not a big time for me. It doesn't make much difference to me. I wish to God it was over and done with, and um, I won't be spending more or less, but I wish everybody a very happy Christmas. And we'll start with the old tale of the builder's bottom. Tom called Joe on the live line. Tom, good afternoon. How are you doing, Joe? Um, You... One, are you in such a position that you can turn a builder away? Yeah, well, I, well, I was basically an electrician and he was coming in to do a bit of wiring and he had his trousers or jeans or whatever it was down below his bottom. You know, a lot of these young fellas are going around the same. And I told him, listen, you have to have a bit of respect coming in here. Put a belt on you and hold your pants up. Don't be at this lack of pulling your pants up every two minutes. Yeah. And you got to have a bit of respect going into people's houses, you know what I mean? You're representing the company, you're representing yourself. And I don't know anyone else, but I told I told the chap, listen, you're not coming in here. You got to have a bit of respect for yourself. Go off and come back with a belt on you or something. But he never came back and that's quite all right. I'll get somebody else that has a bit of respect. But who can in this day and age where you can't get a plumber, a painter, a candlestick maker or indeed an electrician? Yeah, well, it, it's the ethics of it. You have to have a bit of respect for people coming into your home. You know okay. what I mean? And how did you um, know it was that as he had builder's bum? Well, jeepers, I see him getting out of the van and I see him getting his ladder out of the van and be jeepers, it's, I thought the sun was going to shine out of it for a second, you know? But he, he's not the only yeah. one. There's a whole there's a whole marigmarole of them and I told the, your researcher there, you know, appeal to these mothers and, and these girlfriends if your if your husband or partner's in the in the construction industry and he's going into people's homes, have tell make sure he has a bit of respect and be buckled up, you know, proper. And what was his reaction when you told him? Uh, he, he he says I'll be back, but he never came back, and that's quite all right. Well, you know? Was your problem fixed? No, I got somebody else to do it, and they were they were very respectable. They came in. And they did the job, and that's it. You know what I mean? I, I didn't have to be wondering whether the his pants were going to be falling down around his ankles. But what, you know? what, what's it to you, Tom? Whether his his pants fall? He, once he once he fixes the the air fryer or whatever you were getting fixed. Yeah, well, it, uh, now my uh, my my concern is why doesn't why don't they have a bit of respect for the people? They're coming into people's homes, and they're pulling okay. their pants. But their is pants. there not a, is there not a general dressing down? Like the doll, have you seen the recent photographs from the doll? Well, you know, people wearing hats and what well, the rays and yeah, well, sometimes it goes few, a bit too far. I think very few you people know what I mean? wear the Gardaí don't wear a short and tie anymore. They wear t-shirts. I know, and I don't expect a person coming in, change, uh, doing electrical work, to be wearing a short and tie. But I do expect them to have a bit of respect. No, but for my the... point is that there's a general dressing down in society. The Gardaí wear t-shirts. Ah, yeah, I can understand those. Uh, the, you know what I mean? It's for freedom to do their job and, you know, the climate is changing and all this type of stuff. But when you're coming into someone else's home, you're representing yourself, you're representing the company, big name on your van out there. 
Why don't they, why can't these companies have a bit of uh, ethical policy and say you got to be neat and tidy going into these jobs? They should have overalls at least minimum for them, you know. And TV builder Peter Finn was on the line. Peter has the has builders bum is builders bum back as a phenomenon. <laughs> no, I don't think builders bum is the uh, the latest uh, fashion trend that's going on. Joe, be honest, but um, have you ever heard of Sam- have you ever heard of anyone like Tom turning someone away because of what he was wearing? Well, I'm going to be honest, I can kind of understand it. Uh, like, if, if someone is a tradesperson and they're coming to your home and if they're not well-dressed or if they're not, let's say, representing themselves very well in the way that they look, there's a good chance that they're not going to do the same thing uh, in terms of their, their quality of workmanship. Thank so, you, Thank you know, you. I, I, I don't think it's a it's a good thing to do to come in maybe wearing jeans that are halfway down down your, mm. down your, your backside. But, uh, again, workwear has advanced so much these days that most people that you would see in construction are wearing proper workwear gear from there's lots of big brands Irish brands and, and international brands that are, are coming out with some very good, very good. technical very good. gear that suits the the job and you, you yeah. know you can put your tools in, in you know but on different parts of your, your workwear and Snickers is not the main you know, well, yeah you have Snickers you have Helly Hansen um, Port West there's, there's, there's quite oh, a few yeah, quite a few that are doing it you know and Port West are Irish now P- Peter um, but is there is there a dress code there isn't a dress code in the building how could there be a dress code in the building industry no and look, you, you can never judge a book with a cover either as well, Joe. Like, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you, you, you take a look at someone and you, you think that they're not going to be able to cross their hands and then you see the work that they do and, and uh, it's exceptional. But in general, I think, and again, if you look at someone's van, if you open up the back of a van and the stuff is piled, you know, thrown in all over the place, yeah, it's yeah. usually a fairly good indication that they're not going to be very clean in, in the work that they do. Whereas if someone comes in, and again, the quality of tools that they have as well, like, I mean, you know, they're bringing in battered up old tools that they've had for donkey's years. It's good to see that they've had the tools for years, but if someone is kind of keeping on top of the, their their industry, they should have, you know, good uh, good tools and, and obviously make sure they have all the equipment to do the job. But, you know, what you said there about lads not being allowed to go in and, and work wear into a yeah, coffee yeah. shop, that's a joke. Like, that's yeah, absolutely not on. We, want, no we want to read it out again, and it is a professional sign. Now, the name of the company is on it, but we just need to... To double check that someone didn't dummy up a sign for them, which can happen, I suppose. We want to provide a clean dining area for all of our customers. To help us keep it that way, no construction work, workwear and our tools are permitted in the in-store seating area. So, in other yeah. words, that's that's builders get out, isn't it? No, constru- <laughs> no construction workwear. Yeah, they must have had a bad experience where lads were coming in with concrete all over their boots or something like that and covered in dust and being messy. But again, like yeah, that's not lads, on either. Yeah, and lads coming in at 10 o'clock of the morning spending 7 or 8 euro on a breakfast roll, 2, yeah. two euro on a can of Coke, uh, 150 on a bag of Tato and maybe getting the coffee on the way out as well. They're, they're spending 13 or 14 quid every morning. Uh, absolutely, and the construction industry, yes. lads at 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock do keep uh, coffee yeah. shops and, and delis open. And you often see if a, if a construction site finishes up, sometimes small businesses go with them as well. So, yeah, uh, look, yeah. that, I, I don't think that's fair. But I think what Tom started off with there, you know, he, there's certainly, certainly some, some truth in what he said. And fair play to him for you. having the confidence to, uh, to say to the fella to, to tidy himself up. Well, he had the confidence. Yeah. To get, you had fair play to him for having the confidence that he'd get another electrician. Yeah, well, there you go. They're hard to come by. They yeah, are, they yeah. are. But uh, in fairness, Tom sounds like a fairly determined man, so I wouldn't okay. say. Uh, now, Peter, would, I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay the chap well. You know what I mean? Okay, what he okay, asked for. Okay. You know what I mean? I expect him to dress. But Peter, decent. is there is is there a different dress code between younger builders and older builders? 
Yeah, well, look, um, I think younger people, I think it's a generational thing, there's no doubt about it. Uh, younger uh, people that are in construction, the younger generation, are probably more into how they look. Um, they're more into the technology and tools, and they're more into the into the, the workwear, um, having it functional, you know, with four-way stretching the trousers, Joe, is the new thing, and uh, having... Uh, you know, just the way you way you present yourself and the way you look, I think people, the younger generation maybe do have that a little bit more to the forefront. Then Sean called Joe. There should be a dress code with builders or anybody in the public that way to uh, get a pair of braces or a belt. Yeah. And uh, brace up and belt up. And, uh, brace and belt and braces, man. And woman. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, there's nothing as fashionable nowadays. You can get your company logo on your braces and, and uh, back your yellow jacket there and away you go Okay Peter what do you think of that? are braces a problem for builders did they snag or yeah well there's no doubt about it health and safety has to be the first thing so you have to you have to be careful that you don't have something hanging off you that could get caught in machinery or something along yeah. those lines but a belt if it's going to keep up your trousers and make sure you're not showing off half of the moon, I think is a, is, is important. But um, again, as I said there, if you go to any of the workwear companies, they they have some excellent uh, yeah, okay. equipment for for literally for even down to each trade. Like you'll have a different pair of trousers for wow. it, you maybe yeah, floors yeah, to an electrician, hang. to a carpenter, yeah, to you know, to you hang name your hammer you know? or whatever you need. Yes, yeah, Sarah, you're not you're Hello? not you're not a builder's bum woman, so to speak. No, I find it's disgusting, absolutely disgusting. And I don't know where they got the notion that it's a good look, because it certainly isn't. I don't know any woman who would like it, any young woman at all. And have you ever seen an offending? Of course, of course. They're all over the place. And would you do Would you do what Tom did the other day? He turned, he turned the offending cheeky chap away. Would well, you... I mean, he did make his point, you know, that he thought he should wear a belt and pull up his clothes, and he didn't, so he was right. But would you ever do? Would you turn a, a cheeky chap away? You follow well, me? Well, you know, maybe not, but I, I just okay. start to find it gross, absolutely gross. Do you think there's a lot of it about? Yeah, I do. Okay. And it's not a good look, and whoever... Whoever uh, convinced them that it was, they need to do a rain check on it. Sarah there on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, rising levels and dangers of the respiratory illness RSV. The HSE's National Clinical Lead for Children's Health, Dr Abigail Collins, says there are unprecedented levels of the RSV virus at the moment and they have yet to peak. In comments to the Sunday Times, she said the rates of hospitalisation for babies and young children are much higher than in previous years. More than 1,000 have been hospitalised with the virus over the past six weeks. Well, one of them was little Liam Murphy. He's 12 weeks old. He's from Swords in Dublin and his dad, Paul, is on the line now. Paul, you're welcome and thanks for joining us. When did you you first notice that something was wrong with Liam? Um, so, Audrey, it was Halloween Halloween night, actually. We were just sitting at home here in the sitting room Um few trick-or-treaters calling to the door. We tried to feed Liam with uh, a boppy just in his normal routine. He wasn't really uh, taking a whole lot of it. Um, and again, in and of itself, that wasn't a huge concern. Um, 
he, he slept okay through the night. And then the next morning, we actually had a routine appointment in the Beacon, which was completely unrelated. We brought him over to that. Um, that, that was that only lasted about 20 minutes. When we came out, we tried to feed him again. Um, he wasn't taking it. And by the time we got back to Swords and we took him out of the car seat, he was um, very pale, um, quite unresponsive, uh, and almost turning blue around the eyes and the mouth. So, um, yeah, panic stations kicked in and we um, we we headed straight for, for actually, at the time we were heading for CHI and Blanche because it was slightly closer to mm -hmm. Temple Street, but we actually called on the way and they said no to go straight to Temple Street that they, they, uh, CHI and Blanche didn't deal with emergency procedures. So um, we ended up in, in, in Temple Street um, ICU. We were rushed straight in on Tuesday the 1st and, and as, as of today, Liam is, is, is still in the, um, he's still in the hospital, he's still in Crumlin. And he was diagnosed with RSV on that day and you were told that the virus had completely saturated his little lungs and they tried everything, yeah. including a, a ventilator, a little baby being intubated and put on a ventilator, but nothing worked, Paul. Exactly. And, and actually with RSV, ordinarily, um, I mean, we all know it is a common cold, uh, but but uh, it, it seems to have um, uh, developed into something far more aggressive, particularly in newborn babies um, and younger babies. So we ended up in Temple Street. They used what's called a CPAP uh, mask, which is basically oxygen that had to be actually manually held on him, which was quite, uh, quite, quite scary. And, and Liam didn't like it at all, but that was keeping his lungs uh, functioning. He was intubated shortly thereafter, and we were told then that he had to transfer across to Crumlin. So for that to happen, they needed to intubate him, which is tubes down the neck, with a view to putting him on a ventilator uh, straight over to Crumlin. In at the time, what we 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 was just an ambulance, which was scary enough because we couldn't travel with them. But then obviously that developed into into after four or five days in in Crumlin ICU, uh, maxing the os the, the ventilator. Uh, putting him on an oscillator that didn't work not that the virus wasn't shifting and we were given the news then on Saturday the 5th uh, about five days later that we had to travel to Sweden for uh, what was essentially a emergency ECMO therapy treatment um, which is a very very serious advanced life support um, Audrey so that was quite uh, that was quite something to, to hear that news My goodness so he was flown to Stockholm by air ambulance and resuscitated yeah. on arrival there yeah, well, well, ultimately he was he was stable on the ventilator. Uh, at that point, the Swedish team had arrived into Crumlin. They had proceed. They had actually carried out the procedure in Crumlin, um, and then they had uh, transferred him by air ambulance. Now it wasn't until we arrived the next day because we had to make our own way over. They didn't have sufficient room on the air ambulance with all the equipment, and they had a surgeon with them at the time. And when we actually arrived over, we were told that uh, when he got there, he, he had actually um, needed to be resuscitated with CPR. So that was that was quite scary. But but leaving Crumlin, he, he was he was in a stable condition. So again, the virus was was so aggressive, um, completely saturated his lungs. He had every every X-ray that we had done uh, in the week and in the few days in the run up to Sweden would indicate that this the virus was just getting heavier and heavier. And ultimately, it was like a sticky glue blocking his his alveoli and it just it just wouldn't allow him to breathe so the, the machinery had to do it for him and eventually the machinery didn't work so they had to completely 
um, rest his lungs, and that's the treatment that he was put on, which is ECMO, which is basically extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which has taken the blood out of the body through an artificial lung and back in, um, and it rests the major organs uh, to, to give the body a chance to recover and the immune system to kick in itself. So uh, he was on that for 11 days in, in Stockholm. Um, so he was, yes. Oh, that my was goodness. Well, yeah, and he's, he's getting better. You, you hope to have him home soon. And, and your message this morning, Paul, is you think that the, the messaging on this from the HSE could be better? Yeah, Audrey, I suppose he, he, we, we've been through the mill. He, he Thankfully, this is this is a positive story. He's still in the hospital system. We still have to to, 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 to wait on, on, you know, various test results because he's been through a lot. But ultimately, it, 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 it is a positive story, but one that was 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 uh, I'd say unnecessary. But certainly um, we feel that the messaging uh, can be stronger. I think RSV is something that the general public and, and certainly us before this happened would consider as a, maybe a common cold. Uh, out of my four-year-olds, my four-and-a-half-year-old and my two-year-old got it. And I mean, they were they were sick, but they weren't anywhere near what Liam was. So it's it seems that the HSC have contacted the early uh, learning centres and creches. But my understanding is that the messaging hasn't gone out officially to schools. Now, I could be wrong but I haven't seen anything and I and I have been checking um, and I think that's quite important because ultimately we got uh, we got this virus from his older sister who was in the school system and you know Liam was in a very serious condition uh, and we're, we're very lucky to have him here yeah. you know so the messaging definitely can be stronger uh, I know there have been uh, some health warnings on it but in my view not sufficient okay and also I suppose just to have to travel to Sweden for the treatment when it is available here in Ireland is is something that was um, uh, we feel unnecessary at the time. Very necessary. It was our only option, and we're, we're you know I would like to to, to stress the the, uh, the huge thank you to the medical teams in in both Crumlin, Suzanne Crow, Cormac Brecknock, who, who dealt with Liam when he was there, and also the Karolinska um, University Hospital, who were phenomenal. The transport teams, um, everybody really did their did their job and did it uh, over and above. Um, but it was a difficult time oh, and we would have, yeah. <laughs> would have been, it, would have been it, better yeah. to stay at home. Absolutely. But, but. And hopefully Liam will make a full and speedy recovery. That's Paul Murphy from Morning Ireland. And on today with Claire Byrne, looking at civil unrest in China. Martin Ritchie is a journalist based in Shanghai and he was talking to Claire in the morning. First to China, where protests against strict COVID measures have continued into a second night and spread to the largest cities. Demonstrators gathered in the capital Beijing and Shanghai. Among the thousands of protesters, hundreds have called for the removal of Chinese leader Xi Jinping, who has overseen a pandemic strategy of mass testing, lockdown and enforced quarantine. Martin Ritchie is a journalist based in Shanghai and he joins me on the line now. Martin, thank you for taking our call today. This is such a rare show of dissent in China. Can you tell us how it all came about to begin with? Uh, yes, sure. So I, I was actually at the, uh, the, the protest scene in Shanghai uh, last night. Uh, thousands of, of people converging on, on one area of the city, which is normally pretty placid, tree-lined avenues, cafes, wine bars on a, on a Sunday night. Uh, so it was a sort of a very unusual circumstance, as you've already alluded to, sort of uh, pitched, uh, not, not battles, but sort of to and fro between protesters and, and the police as they tried to disperse the crowds. Um, 
Now, what, what's really... Uh, I would say what this is all about is really frustration, uh, a lot of frustration about the unpredictable uh, and uncertain uh, COVID policies that we've seen over the past year. Um, there was a proximate cause. So uh, there was an incident where in the far west of China, uh, there was a, a fire in an apartment complex that led to a number of deaths. Now, a lot of speculation that this was partly because uh, some COVID restrictions had, had meant that the fire service couldn't actually reach that apartment. This caused a lot of anger um, across China at the sort of overzealous nature of some of the policies and the way they're implemented um, across the country. That's, that was a sort of spark. And then what we've seen is uh, a lot of uh, protests since then sort of popping up uh, even last week, to some extent, and a lot of chatter on the internet. But at the weekend, you've seen people coming out onto the streets. Uh, you mentioned Beijing and Shanghai, but a lot, a lot of other cities as well. Uh, really unprecedented uh, in you know for, for for decades in Shanghai to see this kind of action. Uh, and what I would say is, there's not really any set of demands, and I would really probably downplay a little bit what you just mentioned about you know calls for political change. It's just people. And a lot of young people, especially, I would say the crowds predominantly under 30 years old, venting frustration um, about uh, COVID policies. Mm -hmm. And and what you witnessed, what was the, the mood of the protesters there? Because we have seen the video footage where it looked very, very tense and it looked as though the police were cracking down very hard on people who had taken to the streets. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was it was sort of sporadic. Um, so it was a very it was very tense. Um, the you know people were forced uh, along the street, uh, and whenever there was resistance, uh, the police would sort of uh, you know grab uh, one or two people from from the front and and drag them away. Uh, you know. So sometimes, but you know, with their feet dragging behind them uh, into the into the cop vans, uh, a lot of a lot of shouting uh, when this happened. People shouting, "Let them go! Let them go!" Um, some people singing sort of you know sort of famous uh, songs. Uh, people singing the international. Uh, some people singing the national anthem. Uh, a lot of sort of sort of playful stuff as well, mm -hmm. like uh, sort of sarcastic applause uh, every time a new busload of cops um, showed up and tripped along the street. Um, there was, you know, obviously it, it, was, it, was, it was very tense. Um, we've heard reporters been um, dragged off as well, uh, a BBC reporter uh, in, in particular who, you know, I happen to know personally. This is um, Ed Lawrence Martin. Yes, that's right, yeah. So he and the, and the BBC confirmed this, that he was beaten and kicked by the police while covering the protests. He was arrested and then uh, released. Do you any know any more about what happened to, to him? Uh, no, I can't say anything more beyond the, uh, the, the statements and the reporting that, that's, that, that, that's gone out. Um, uh, Ed was, I think, at the scene... Uh, where people were gathering initially, which was the same site as a protest 
on Saturday night, but on Sunday, I think the, the police were better prepared to come and disperse people from that intersection. I think that was where that initial kind of burst of push people down four different streets away from there. Uh, that was where there was the most confrontation. Uh, other you know, many people were detained. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, from you know, Chinese people, uh, whenever they, there was concerted resistance to the police pushing them. Uh, I think a Reuters reporter uh, was also detained um, for a moment. You know, it's not clear to me whether uh, they're being, you know, detained in relation to their reporter status uh, or not. Martin Ritchie from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the news at one, the plight of 200 Ukrainian refugees moving from the Ibis Hotel in Clondalk in Dublin. Now, more than 200 Ukrainian refugees who've been living at the Ibis Hotel in Clondalk in Dublin are preparing to move to alternative accommodation this lunchtime. The group, including families with children, have been living in the hotel since March. Our reporter, Laura Fletcher, has been following developments. She joins us now from Clondalk. And what's been happening there in the last little while, Laura? Brian, as I talk to you now, I can see there's two buses uh, parked outside the hotel and uh, one of the buses is, again, being packed with suitcases. There's people kind of bringing their belongings out of the hotel. The lobby is full of people with their packed suitcases. And this will be the third bus to leave uh, just before we came on air, uh, just after half one. The second bus pulled out and another bus pulled out earlier this morning. Um, And so we know that people were notified they were going to be leaving. Most of the people I've spoken to are going to be going to the Trabalgan Holiday Centre in Cork although I've also heard that there may be people going to Limerick and I also spoke to one young girl who's going to Bray Uh, there were concerns about things like families being split up, I talked to one young girl who's uh, one of 11 and uh, they had uh, understood that some of the the people were going to be going to Limerick and others going to Cork but that's been resolved so there have been stresses but there are are IPAS officials here kind of working through things so that family are staying together and I understand that those kind of things were probably administered of mistakes but really stressful for the people involved. Mm. There also have been efforts to try and accommodate people in houses in the area. I know that the Irish Red Cross and Helping Irish Hosts were involved in that work and it's understood that 90 people who were staying in the hotel by the end of this month will have been uh, located in houses and um, and some of those um, around 29 or so will be within commuting distance of this area and for those with children in schools here, some of those families have been here since March. Uh, of course, that's that's a mm. huge relief. But there are those who have schools in the area who are hoping to stay here, who are still hoping to stay here. Um, and, but others, there's been, you know, hugs mm. and gifts to the hotel. Others seem, I suppose, resigned that they are now moving um, in what is a, an accommodation crisis with mm. more than 65,000 Ukrainians now in the country seeking oh. refuge. Laura Fletcher from the News at One with Brian Dobson. And on today with Claire Byrne, the war in Ukraine, the roots and causes behind Putin's invasion. Claire was talking to Luke Harding about his new book on the war. Russia has been waging a pitiless war against Ukraine, killing civilians, destroying infrastructure and leaving so many without a safe place to call home. The causes and the course of the war are the subjects of a new book called Invasion. The author is Guardian foreign correspondent Luke Harding, who joins me now. Luke, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning, Claire. Going back to uh, the root of all this, the cause of all this, and and Vladimir Putin has what you describe as a brooding obsession with Ukraine. Why is it so important 
to him and so central to his political thinking? Well, I mean, Putin published an extraordinary essay um, uh, just over a year ago where he said that Ukraine and Russia were essentially uh, one people, as he put it. And he he has long considered that Ukraine is not a country, it's not a state. Essentially, it's a lost kingdom. Um, And it would be possible to kind of ignore this as the sort of fantasy of a a dictator uh, now in his 70th year, were it not for the fact that he acted upon it. You know, we saw this ominous buildup of troops and tanks uh, and, and aircraft around Ukraine's borders last autumn when I started going back to Ukraine. And then, of course, as you say, this pitiless invasion. This response, though, that we've seen from Ukraine, that seems to have been the unexpected uh, part of all of this from a Russian perspective. But we know that Ukraine is thick with Russian informants. And you would imagine that some of them must have warned Moscow that Ukraine would would resist in the way that it has. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, a great point, And it's one of the big paradoxes of this war. I mean, Vladimir Putin thinks himself to be a brilliant spy uh, in, in command of uh, everything he sees facing off against a, a weak and a resolute West, whether it's the UK, the US, Ireland and so on. And, and actually, he was remarkably badly informed. And, and I, I think probably his spy agencies told him what he wanted to hear, that Ukrainians would rise up and, and welcome their Russian liberators in inverted commas. And in, on, on the eve of war, I was in Kiev and I was talking to one of Ukraine's spy chiefs and he was saying, uh, I think rather interestingly, he was saying that we have always understood the Russians better than they have understood us. That, you know, because after all, Ukrainians are bilingual. They speak Russian, they speak Ukrainian. And he was essentially saying the Russians actually are pretty ignorant about who we are. Uh, and and what what happened, of course, for the Russians was a nasty surprise. They thought they would take Kiev in three days. Nine months on, they're still fighting. Did he grossly underestimate uh, Vladimir Zelensky? Did he look at him and see, well, here we have this former comedian, former actor, I can take, I can take Ukraine out now at this moment in time? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he did. And, and what, what's forgotten now, uh, because Zelensky is so famous, is that actually at the time of the invasion, <clears throat> excuse me, his, his opinion poll ratings were um, sagging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also really for quite a long time, up until the last minute, he was in a denial, in denial about what Russia was going to do, despite very clear warnings from the US and, and, and from the UK. But since then, I mean, Zelensky has, has really transformed himself into a great war leader. I mean, his speeches to the Irish parliament, to, to, to Westminster, ha- have been um, astonishing, full of rhetoric. One of the things I did for this book was to talk to his speechwriter who told me that Zelensky is very keen on poetry. Um, you know, he directs himself. Um, he, 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 he quite often, he, he sort of writes his own speeches. Um, and, you know, one of my colleagues described him as Winston Churchill with an iPhone. And I, and I do think there's something in that, the way that you know, n- not only are we talking about a-, a fight back on the battlefield, but actually Ukraine's been extremely successful in getting its message to the world. OK, so let's come back then to the Russian side of things. And and you describe Russian soldiers killing and mistreating civilians, looting, raping, hijacking. Can you explain why the invaders are so ill-disciplined as a military force? Yes. I mean, I think there are several reasons. One of them is is just Russian propaganda. For, for a period of, of years in the run-up to, to the invasion, Russians have been told by, by state media that Ukrainians are not really people, that they're, they're subhuman. I mean, Dmitry Medvedev, the former president, described them as vassals. Um, and they were under the impression that, that 
uh, essentially Ukrainians were, were Nazis or neo-Nazis, as the Kremlin calls them. And, and th this is a ridiculous um, a stereotype, which bears no relation to reality. I mean, Volodymyr is himself Jewish and lost much of his family in, in, in the Holocaust. But they were kind of roaming around looking for traitors, looking for Nazis. And of course, when they didn't find them, they, they exacted a sort of terrible price on the civilian population. And, you know, actually, Claire, it's been quite hard to, to, to report some of this um, material. I mean, I was in Bucha in April. Um, I've seen mass graves in Azum in the north of the country. I was recently in Hezon province. And, and everywhere Russia goes, you know, when they retreat, you find torture chambers, you find bodies, and you find really uh, unbearable stories of execution. And Claire asked Luke about the Russians' morale and motives. The Russian soldiers don't really know why they're there. I mean, you, you talk to any uh, Ukrainian fighter um, on the front line and you say, look, what, what, why, why, why are you here? And they all say the same thing. And it's not because they've sort of been told to give, give an answer. It's because it comes from the heart. And they say, I'm, I'm fighting to defend my family, my wife, my kids, my village, my home, my country. Uh, and for Ukrainians, it's existential. They understand that if Vladimir Putin succeeds in wiping Ukraine from the map, which is really his objective, that then they'll all, um, they'll all be enslaved or subjugated practically. And, and the Russian soldiers, by contrast, were told initially it was about Nazis. Then it was about saving the Donbass and the east of the country. R recently, the Kremlin, and I kid you not, has been talking about desatanization, rooting out satanic evil in Ukraine. Uh, and and actually, I, you know, my strong sense is that a lot of the Russian soldiers really don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. You describe this in another way, uh, Russia as being vertical, Ukraine as being horizontal in, how, in terms of how people are governed. Will you explain that, uh, Luke? Yes. I mean, Russia, I spent four years there as the Guardian's Moscow bureau chief until 2011 when I was kicked out. And, and what, what's clear is it's, it's a very vertical society, by which I mean, it's, it's almost feudal that there is a, a strongman president, a, a czar figure, if you like. And then, then there's the mass of ordinary Russians who, who tend to bow to authority um, and do what they're told. And Ukrainians, by contrast, they, they have a sort of democratic tradition going back to the 17th century. And, and they're rather kind of they're creative and anarchistic. And also they distrust the state. I mean, they've had such a lousy experience of, of the Soviet state of, of persecution by Moscow, of famine. And, and they're just incredibly um, self-organized. I mean, I describe them as a sort of super organism, horizontal, and, and whether that's students making Molotov cocktails or, you know, volunteers coming back in spring from abroad to, to fight on the front line or old ladies um, singing songs and making camouflage nets. You get the impression that the, the whole of Ukrainian society is is working towards victory, which is still some way off, but but you can kind of begin to glimpse it. Yeah, it, it is very complicated, though, isn't it? And I've spoken to Ukrainian people here who tell me about their relatives in the east of the country who are pro-Russia and who support Russia. How strong is that sentiment? Is it measurable in Ukraine? Uh, I mean, hard, hard to, to, to sort of measure it with a figure, but I, my, my sort of strong impression is that this is much smaller than it was. Um, and that was one of Putin's mistakes. I mean, back in 2014, it's true that there was a, a significant minority in the east of the country in places like Donetsk and Luhansk who, who were sort of pro-Kremlin. Um, uh, and Putin basically took advantage of this to, to start a war and to create these kind of pseudo 
territories in the east and around Donetsk and Luhansk. Since then, actually, the reality is that the sort of pro-Russian sentiment is really very small. I mean, there are mm -hmm. a few people for sure, but actually the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians um, hate Putin, uh, loathe actually really loathe Russia and, and a lot of them have fallen out with their Russian relatives I mean bear in mind these two countries were very close for a long period of time and uh, and actually what we're seeing now is a, is a great you know a, a, it's decolonization it's a great anti-imperial uprising against against big brother and against the Russian state we see this weaponizing of winter now coming into these uh, colder months in Russia the systematic destruction of Ukraine's infrastructure these drone and missile attacks on power stations, Luke, could those attacks eventually limit Ukraine's will and ability to resist? Yeah, I mean, I've been in Kiev when, when you know, you wake up in the morning uh, and you hear an air raid siren and you try and figure out whether you, you, you go to the shelter or whether you, you just take your chances. Uh, and then 10, 15, 20 minutes later, you hear a boom and then, and then another boom. And, and this, as you say, has been Russia uh, over successive weeks, really since, since early October, destroying civilian infrastructure, sort of knocking out power stations, sending cruise missiles all across Ukraine. Um, and um, what can I tell you? I mean, Kiev is dark much of the, the, the time. If, if the electricity is working, you charge your phone. Um, but I, I don't think this is going to break Ukrainians. I mean, it makes them furious. But but their will to to survive, to to adapt, to endure, um, and to liberate their territory, I think, is undimmed. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, Putin does it because he can do it. But it, it won't win him the war. And and actually, on the battlefield, Russia is going backwards. And I think next year in the spring, when when the weather improves, we'll continue to go backwards. Luke Harding from today with Claire Byrne. And as Ryan Tupperty was taking a breather after the toy show, Oliver Callan was sitting in this morning and his guest was Irish archaeologist Susan Athar from Trim, County Mead, but a resident in Australia since the 80s. And an interesting look at the Irish in South Australia since the 1850s. I want to go to Australia now and uh, archaeology in the news very much today. And Susan Arthur uh, was interested in archaeology of the Irish in Australia when she emigrated there in the 1980s. She just finished a PhD on a fascinating project. She's going to tell us all about it now. Good evening, Adelaide and Susan Arthur. Hello. How nice to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank <laughs> you. This is a fascinating subject. I've only um, just discovered it via you now. Um, and first of all, you, you've, you're there in Australia for quite some time, aren't you, in Adelaide? Look, it is coming up to um, 35 years, which seems like an oh. awful long time when I say it out loud. Um, but I've only been in the archaeology business for about the last 10 or 11 years. Oh, really? Uh, where are you from originally, mm. Susan? Originally from Trim, County Meath. Now, what a place to be interested in history. Honestly, uh, growing up, we were just surrounded by it, like it was everywhere. And it's probably one of the reasons I've always been interested in history and archaeology. And I guess going back to it in the last you know, number of years, it's never not been there as an interest. You couldn't live in Trim without being interested in history and archaeology, no. really. You'd have to be sort of um, uh, severely lacking in curiosity to, to walk through Trim <laughs> even once and not wonder what happened before. So you're in Australia and in the last 10 years, so you, you had a different career before the archaeology? Uh, yeah, before archaeology, I was involved in web management, really. So building oh. big websites for big government departments and managing them and 
all about information, really. So it actually is related because I've always been really interested in how people get access to information and making sure that they can get the information they need when they want us. And archaeology is also about finding out information for people and about people. So I could sort of, you know, make it all sound very planned, even though it wasn't. (laughs) I was about to say it's quite a career swerve, but you've actually uh, confounded that already by saying people looking for the information. Okay, so you made this amazing discovery, which became the subject of your PhD. Tell us what you found. Well, um, when I went back to do studies in archaeology, I, I was hooked as soon as I went back and did my first topic. Mm. And um, as soon as I knew that I was loving it, I thought I want to go and do a master's in this area. And I would really like to do something about the Irish in South Australia. Because interestingly, although there are so many Irish people in Australia, there aren't actually that many people, Irish people in South Australia. And although there's been a lot of work done in the histories across Australia, there's been pretty much nothing done about the Irish in terms of archaeology. And so I started looking at this area up near Kapunda, which is about 70 kilometres north of Adelaide, just to the west of the Barossa Valley, where you probably would have drunk some of their wines. Okay. And yep. And uh, so I was really interested in just finding out about this community that lived there that was known as an Irish community, but that had not been really studied or, you know, had sort of fallen out of the histories, really. And then it was so interesting that I then started work on a PhD about the same area and uh, found that it was, in fact, this really unique Irish settlement that lasted for nearly 100 years. That now when you look at where it was, it's basically just fields, there's sheep and wheat. There's nothing that looks like there no were you know, 500 of, people living here. Yeah. Um, and they were living in a clahan and they were living in this little cluster of houses where they were managing the land together. And when the legal landowners wanted it, they weren't giving it back and they fought for land rights. And it's a really interesting story. And it's, it's men, women and children, isn't it? It's a proper thriving community. Yeah. Whole families. Yeah. yeah. And uh, whole, it was part of the, I guess, the immigration to South Australia is because it's a a free settler colony. So um, there weren't ever any convicts here. So people did tend to come out as families. And that was really encouraged because they wanted equal balances of, of men and women. They didn't actually really want the Irish here at all because uh, they weren't very popular um, in South Australia. Mm-hmm. And they tried to minimise the number of Irish migrants that were coming. So again, that's why it's interesting because this area called Baker's Flat there were like 500 of them living wow. here at this time and they stayed there for nearly 100 years. When do they, um, when do they, they get there? And they were really, really distinctive. And Oliver asked Susan about when the Irish arrived in South Australia. OK, so these uh, Irish arrived around 1854 and they came up to Kapunda, which is this area just west of the Brossa Valley near yeah. uh, north of Adelaide, because there was a copper mine there and there was lots and lots of work in the copper mine. So they came to the mine to look for work um, and then more and more of them arrived after that. Amazing. And the dominant culture, as you say at the time, it was English Protestant. It's obviously middle of the 19th century. Yeah. So there are those tensions uh, which cross all the yeah. way across the world and, and uh, yes. are just, yeah. re- just repeated in this random place in, in southern, in South Australia. Yeah. And uh, in a way, I mean, it was sort of, it was almost, although sort of the English were very, very dominant, like they held all the power, they held all the wealth, they owned all the land. Um, and 
but it wasn't really so much, I think, the sort of like English-Irish thing as well, although that was dominant in the sort of the, the whole state. But at Kapunda, I think it was more that the Irish were here and they were living in this area where it was sort of like capitalism gone mad because there was a mine pumping out lots of ore and where people were earning lots of money, like the wealthy people. Yeah. There was massive sheep stations, so people were making a lot of money from farming. And then there was this group of Irish people who took this land that was actually owned by somebody else, okay. decided to stay on it. Then when the legal landowner wanted it back, went, no, we're staying anyway, and made all their decisions together collectively and communally. So they had like, you know, 60 head of cattle. They had goats and wow. they had geese and so on. But they managed them together. So it was sort of like this clash between this collective communal way of life yes. and this sort of mad capitalism surrounding them. And uh, what did the Clahan look like? So the Clahan looked like about 30 or 40 houses uh, all clustered together. And they looked like a little Irish village. So if you painted a picture in your head of what like an old Irish house with a thatched roof and a half door and a couple of small windows looks like, that's what it looked like. Um, now, there were, they were the better houses. There were, you know, not everybody on Baker's Flat could build a house. So there were a lot of poor people living there mm-hmm. who, um, you know, so were just making do with whatever they could cobble together. But there were at least 30 or 40 of these houses. Um, and the, you know, because they've sort of fallen out of the histories, the only photographs that we have are from one newspaper in 1906, yeah. where there was a series of photographs which photographed six different of these houses. Um, And that's where we could tell that that's um, what they looked like. And then, of course, when I went and did some excavations, that's what we were excavating. We were excavating a house that looked exactly like an old Irish house. I mean, because everything was just um, demolished, wiped, wiped out in the 50s, the 1950s. Yes. Yeah, basically to facilitate farming. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, some of the landowners when they came to try and reclaim their land back from this Irish community that were well settled. Um, they, yes. they, were, they, they set out to defend themselves, didn't they? They did, and the women were particularly strong. Yeah. And I guess it was around the time as well of the land war in Ireland. And yep. we know that there was a lot of communication between Ireland and Australia, and the land war in Ireland was covered extensively in the mm. press here. So they were using the same sort of tactics of putting women on the front line, maybe to sort of minimise sort of violence and so on. But as part of the, the legislation here in, us, in South Australia, if somebody, could, if somebody who had bought the land, but then other people were saying, no, they owned it instead, like these Irish people were, if you could put a fence on the land, you could basically establish possession. So fencing was really important. Uh-huh. So on a number of occasions, the legal owners sent in some fencers to dig post holes and erect fences and therefore go, no, it's our land. And the women were having none of it. So they had brooms and sticks and shovels and they brought their kids out and they all went out and would meet the fencers on the way. And there's a glorious story where um, the fencers, you know, came onto the land And one woman who was the spokesperson came up and said that she was prepared to lose the last drop of her blood before they would sink a hole in the land. And then they dug a hole and then she jumped into the hole. 
and said that the next thing they would have to do would be to put the spades through her body. So the poor old fencers went off and had a bit of a huddle and uh, decided that maybe that wasn't (laughs) the best idea and they left. They were tough people, weren't they? They were strong women, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, so that happened, uh, those sort of events happened regularly over, and this was when the mine had finished the mine had closed by then. It was like 1879, 1880. Right. And so the reason why, you know, the people were there, they were there to act, to, to labour in the mine, that was no longer a reason for them to be there. So the landowners went, well, we'll have the land back now, thanks very much. But they were having none of us, the Irish. And yeah, and so the women... And they held on to their, their community. And yeah, they held on to yeah. that. And Susan has traced the families that lived at Baker's Flat. Because a lot of the people on Baker's Flat were from County Clare. So I've identified 145 different names of, like different family names, different families that were on Baker's Flat. And 40%, more than 40% of those were from County Clare. So they would have been very familiar with the Clahan system. And I think probably when they arrived and they had access to this large amount of land, because they had about 340 acres that they could control. Um, So they arrived, I think they probably started just by doing what they'd always done. And then it just became clear that by working together, they had a lot of strength and power. And that was when they really started to get organised and they started doing a lot of work together. Susan Arthur talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And on today with Claire Byrne, a bit of elf and safety and some of the dangerous things that can end up on the Christmas list. Keith Sinnott is a consultant orthopaedic surgeon and he was talking to Claire in the morning. Quad bikes and scrambler bikes. Now, let's talk about these first, uh, Keith. They're, they are being bought for children and we've had warnings from Gardaí about buying them. How dangerous are they? Well, the thing about quad bikes and scramblers, unlike kind of traditional children's gifts, is they can go very fast. They're heavy. They're relatively unstable. Um, and because of that, they can be associated with much more significant injuries. Um, my main kind of line of work is working in the spinal cord injuries unit in the matter and unfortunately we are beginning to see younger people with these kinds of injuries um, from using things like this so really these are it should be remembered that they're kind of high speed heavy unstable vehicles um, and, and really they're not ideal as toys for that reason So you're seeing the people with serious spinal injuries you're not seeing the broken bones they don't come to you you're, you're dealing with the very very serious stuff well, in in the spinal unit, that's what we are seeing, and kind of traditionally, and you know, we're all we we all were kids, and we all had broken bones here and there from kind of horse playing around. And um, but these are kind of a different level of injuries that we're seeing. So yes, we do see the more minor injuries, um, but but with increasing regularity, we're seeing these very significant, severe, and potentially life changing injuries. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me, Keith, what what it means for you if you damage your spinal cord? Well, the, sp- the spinal cord is a bit like the brain, and unfortunately, it do- it doesn't regenerate, it doesn't repair, it doesn't grow again. So, unlike you know a broken bone where the bone will heal, or a cut in the skin where the skin will heal, the spinal cord doesn't heal. So, if you sustain a spinal cord injury, um, it's very likely that whatever damage is done to it will will, will never recover, meaning that 
all the functions upon which you rely on your spinal cord are kind of lost. So people will often think about walking or, you know, being able to get around the place. And that's really only part of it because if your spinal cord is damaged, you, you, kind of, you can't feel your skin, which puts you at risk of pressure sores, which can be very, very significant for these kind of patients. Obviously, mobilizing if your legs are, are not working, but if your arms aren't working, you might be able to feed yourself, wash yourself, dry yourself. And then alongside all of that, you can have issues with other functions, your bowel function, your bladder function, and even in some cases, kind of your ability to breathe on your own without machines. So the effects of these injuries can be really very, very significant. Okay. so and and in particular, you're warning about scramblers and and quad bikes when we're talking about serious and permanent spinal cord damage. But even things like, and we might think of these as being innocuous, certainly trampolines, but also electric scooters, you say, can cause serious harm. Yeah, again, electric scooters. So back in the day, pre-electrics, if you wanted to go on a scooter, you were powering yourself by shoving your foot along the ground. So the speed you could go was fairly modest. But we know that when an injury happens, it's because of transfer of energy from, you know, to the to the person kind of leading to the injuries. And electric scooters nowadays, and we probably all have experience, and certainly I do where I live, going along the cycle track with somebody overtaking me on a scooter going at some ferocious speed. Um, and we know just kind of simple physics that if you go twice as fast, you're four times more likely to have a very significant injury. So things that can go kind of very rapidly can lead to very significant injuries. And because they're so visible on the streets, as you say, Keith, that can result in children, um, some of them who live in my house, asking, can they have one? You know, they, they see them so often that they think, well, why can't I have an electric scooter? Sure, there's definitely a degree of familiarity. And I, I think with a lot of these things, you know, safety is at the mind um, and they're limited and restricted in the speed that they can go on and they can be used in fairly uh, confined environments where people can be cautious of them. But I think, and I'm no expert in this, but I think they can be kind of unlocked and they can go an awful lot quicker. And sometimes, as you say, kids see people playing around on them, but they don't realise sometimes the, the, the speed that they go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it can be very obvious when you see in a flat piece of ground, some people are absolutely flying along on these things. Yeah. Sometimes they're on roads rather than on footpaths, which maybe is better because they're more likely to hurt themselves than somebody else who's walking on the footpath. But it's, it's, it's a different kettle of fish when you've got somebody who has these unlocked and they're going at 30 or 40 kilometres an hour, often with no helmets or no protection of gear, maybe with no lights, particularly in the winter when it's a bit dark. Um, you know, it's something to be really cautious of. Trampolines? Yeah, again, trampolines are, are kind of the other, the two ways you can really hurt yourself. One is going fast and the other is being high and falling down a long way. So uh, we actually know from a lot of the audit work that we're doing that, that when you think of, you tend to think of major trauma, something that happens in kind of road crashes or on building sites. But in fact, a fall from a standing height can often cause it. But if you're on a trampoline, the fun of it is going higher and higher. So the heights that you can get to um, mean that the injuries you can get are more significant. Keith Sinnott from Today with Claire Byrne. And it was the food of Cork featuring in the afternoon when Ray Darcy chatted to Sinead Dundon about the Bandon cookbook. Uh, the reason we're talking to you is that the uh, Bandon Grammar School launched a cookbook last week. And this is the we first time it. they've done such a thing since 1977, 45 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so, so why and how and, and whose idea was it? Right. Well, I suppose if you go back to, first of all, to 1977, that particular book was uh, the parents' response to a need for fundraising for an extension to the school at the time. Mm. 
So kind of fast forward to 2020, um, we were all stuck at home, eating ourselves inside out, I think, at the time. <laughs> and um, I suppose one of our, our uh, folks from the Parents Association Committee, Heather, was at home and found her mother-in-law's copy of the 1977 cookbook and uh, had a good browse through it and came and talked to us all about it. And as luck would have it, we were looking for a fundraising um idea for the Parents Association mm. and we just kind of went yeah there's a really good idea um, that was back when we were innocent I think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well you see oftentimes with these fundraising projects if you thought it through you probably never do it well, this, this is it. I mean, we've kind of said, you know, we're, we're, we're leaving this time capsule for our grandchildren going, do not even think about doing this, you know. I love that. Um, but it's it's done. It's done. That's the brilliant thing. And it's out there, well, which it, is great. It is. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is, you know, and it, it was a fantastic night last Thursday night. And I think what blew us away, because I suppose we're a group of amateurs. So so Parents Association was is 16 people, but there was a subcommittee of six people. Mm. And um, I suppose we just kind of, you know, kind of lurched our way through it and we're complete novices. So, so yeah. all of this was like, what do we do now? Yeah. And how do we fix that? And, you know, <laughs> but by the time we got to last Thursday night, you know, we kind of had such an amount of help from local businesses, um, just in terms of the local printers, band and print services, if I can give them a call out mm, for all of the help can. that they gave us. And, you know, just we, we then did a food fair to, to kind of launch the, 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 the cookbook on the night and so many great local producers showed up to that and it just made such a an event of the night if you know what I mean as opposed to you know you roll up you have your cup of tea and you go home this was there was such a buzz around the school because of it how it, many it pages how many pages 240 pages Ray wow and, and absolutely when you got it into your hand for the first time Sinead that's a very yeah. special moment isn't it which would have been about half past three the day before the launch. So just, you know, <laughs> it was like that. But there had been, we, we, we just had such, I mean, I think the first time we saw the proof, um, it was just amazing to see it because I suppose we'd put so much work mm. into kind of the the collection of the recipes and all of that. But but your heart kind of stops when you see it. And admittedly, then we started looking, it went, oh my God, we have so much work to do in it. But at the same time, just seeing it um, in, in in reality was, was really something, yeah. you know, uh, and, and it still is now. The reason you got so much coverage is that back in 1977, uh, the cover mm-hmm. was designed by... Graham Walker. Yes, who we now Who's know now as, known as Graham, Graham Norton. Norton. I, yeah. I, see, if that came up in a pub quiz, I wouldn't have known the answer to that. Oh, wouldn't you? No. There you go. There you go, yeah. You, you so, learn something. So he... I, I learned something yeah, as well. So, so he, he was obviously good at art back in the day, probably still is. Uh, I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So will you talk us through it? Is it, is it two deers uh, stirring a pot? Is that it? The, the, well, that's it. And that kind of takes its cue from the school crest. And so the school is, is, is like, it's been around since 1642. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the but but the crest is basically it features two deer in it, so it's kind of a play on that. Sinead Dundon from the Ray Darcy Show, and that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.